I wanted to take a moment and talk to you about Radical Roots. So I founded this company when my son Remy was diagnosed with a rare genetic disorder and intractable epilepsy. As a doctor of Chinese medicine, I knew that the best way to support his complex neurological and physiological needs would be through dynamic Chinese herbal formulas. I also started studying the incredible effects of hemp and its ability to support and regulate the brain and the body. By combining targeted Chinese herbal formulas with complete spectrum hemp and using a unique alchemical spagyric extraction technique, we have created formulas that are true game changers. Honestly, I truly believe that these are some of the most powerful herbal formulas on the market. Please check out RadicalRootsHerbs.com, use the code RADREMEDY, and get 15% off your first order. I'm so, so proud of these, and I think you guys are going to love them as much as I do. Hey guys, it's Dr. Chloe Weber, and this is the Radical Remedy Podcast. Today's guest is none other than Dave Asprey, the father of biohacking. This conversation is really fascinating. We dive into so many different ways that you can support your children's health and development through the lens of biohacking. I really enjoyed all of Dave's insights and it was such an honor to get to speak with him. I hope you guys will enjoy this conversation as much as I do. Today, I'm here with the one and only father of biohacking, Dave Asprey himself. Dave is absolutely one of my heroes and I am so grateful to have you here. I'm happy to be here. You're uh, working on a really important thing. It's kind of easier to biohack before you're born or when you're really young than it is when you're 80 and you want to get young again. It's more work the longer you wait. <laughs> it is true. You build up quite a bit of toxins and uh, and injuries. Yeah. One of the things that I get is a lot of people are asking what biohacking is. And so I will admit that I had a patient come in to see me about seven years ago and they were all about the butter coffee. And as an acupuncturist, I was like, I don't know what this shenanigans is. This is ridiculous. Like, do such a thing. <laughs> you're going to blow out your spleen. Like, we can't do this stuff. And uh, and then as time went on, sometimes you learn a few things. And I took Remy, my son, to a doctor in Ecuador, and the doctor was doing ozone therapy. And so then when I came back as a super nerd, I was like, I need to learn more about ozone. What is this magical stuff? And lo and behold, you were the only person really talking about it. And then I felt fell hard down into the, the deep web that is biohacking. So I am incredibly grateful for all of your wisdom and all the work that you do. But let's oh, start with you. the basics. What is biohacking? <laughs> biohacking is a, a movement that I started 10 years ago. And people call me the father of biohacking because of that. And it's a new word in the English language in 2018. It was added to the dictionary. And Weirdly, I'm, I used to be a fat computer hacker. Like that was actually my job in Silicon Valley. And if you had just said, oh, someday there'll be a dictionary entry that has your name in it around by I can't be like, what are you talking about? Uh, but it did happen. And the definition is the art and science of changing the environment around you and inside of you so that you have control of your own biology. And what is, is recognizing that if you want to make your body do what you want, and if, and I, by the way, I had Asperger's syndrome until I made it go away. So um, your body is something that is highly malleable and tunable, and so are your kids' bodies. But the part about biohacking that matters, it changes the environment outside of you 
because the body will react to that and to change the environment inside of you if it needs it. And it's that combination of the two. Before, it was like the environment's out there and I'm in here and you know I'm an island and then I'll take a drug or something and then it's going to change things. But it turns out changing the environment, it's not like you do one thing to change the environment. You know, if, if you if you grow grass, well, it actually changed the amount of carbon, it changed the amount of rain, it changed all sorts of stuff. So it's not like you're changing one thing, it's a system. And that matches very closely to something called epigenetics, uh, where maybe Bruce Lipton is probably the biggest voice there. And he's saying, look, the environment actually changes your genes. It changes more than just your genes, but it does change your genes. So that's what it is. Let's set up the world so that you and your kids uh, succeed better and that your body does what you want. If my environment's off, I suddenly get brain fog. I have a hard time paying attention. I get angry. Uh, I gain weight like you wouldn't believe. My joints hurt. Uh, and I'll probably, say, act like a jerk. Uh, and I just don't, I don't show up the way I'm capable of. When my environment is dialed in, I can run five companies, write a New York Times bestseller every year and have a top 100 podcast and be a father of two kids and a, a husband and have friends and a normal life and not be stressed. So, geez, do I have my environment dialed in? Is it worth it? Yes, it's totally worth it. Um, so that's exactly sort of one of the things that I think is such a big issue with children's health right now is that I think a lot of people are looking at one problem so they can find one cure or one answer to this issue. And clearly with the epidemic that we're facing, it's not a one-to-one -one correlation. So one of the things that you've dealt with and one of the things that you've explored pretty extensively is toxic mold. And you did the moldy movie, which is available for free online. I'll plug that because I've watched it and it's great. And it's really important for people to understand how much toxic mold affects your environment. But what are some of the external factors that you think are so important for kids to sort of optimize or for families to optimize so that their children can thrive? Well, avoiding things that slow you down or cause harm would be a really good idea. Imagine that you had a pickup truck and you've got two tons of cement in the back of the truck and you pull into the mechanic. You go, I want to make my truck faster. Now, the mechanic could say, hey, let's put in a bigger engine and, you know, all sorts of stuff. Or he could say, maybe just take the cement out of the back of the truck and it'll be faster. And so, <laughs> like, let's set down all of the things, some of which we think are healthy that we're doing, that are causing harm or slowing us down or making our brains not work as well or making our, our inflammation levels go up. And let's do that for our kids. And then let's do what makes them strong. And the problem is that we oftentimes think we're doing something healthy. A, a really scary trend I see right now is plant-based diets. <laughs> if you want to make your child have hormonal issues, brain issues, brain fog, behavioral issues, bad skin, and set them up for a lifetime of suffering, make them plant-based only. Because guess what? Every cell in your body has a cell membrane. And you might think of a membrane as like plastic wrap, but that's not what it is. It's tiny droplets of fat. And kids are more susceptible to toxins, but because their bodies have to make energy, enough energy to grow, and they have to continuously build new cells in a way that adults don't, we have to give them enough energy and we have to give them the right building blocks because the body will grow and you can give them French fries and McNuggets and they will make those little droplets of fat in their cells out of damaged fats that are not really compatible with us, but they're better than not having any cells. So then you make a child's body out of damaged fat that creates free radicals. 
And it's no wonder that they have food cravings and that they pest you all the time and they have emotional outbursts. If instead you look at, hmm, 45% of the fat in the average cell is saturated fat. All of your child's hormones are made out of saturated fat and cholesterol. Even the Heart Association said cholesterol is a, is a nutrient of non-concern. In other words, we were wrong about telling you to not eat cholesterol. It was the 80s. We didn't know what we were doing. Sorry about that. Right? They still have their attack on saturated fat, which doesn't make sense. Your body manufactures saturated fat whenever it can. So your kids, they should be eating grass-fed butter. Since my, my children were very young, they would come into the kitchen and say, Daddy, can I have a bite of butter? And they'd eat like a piece of cheese. I'm like, all right, fine. And then I soon realized that when you have a two-year-old, you give them a piece of butter, just a little bite, you know, a teaspoon or something. They would take it and rub it all over their face. And that's not good. So it soon became, Daddy, can I have a bite of butter in my mouth, please? Because I would just take it like a little reverse Pez dispenser and like stick it into their mouth like, oh, it's so good. And then they'd walk away. And guess what? My kids were never food obsessed and sugar obsessed. They're actually full. My daughter was eight. She said, Daddy, I don't understand. I go to school and as soon as I get there, the teacher says it's time to eat and the other kids are hungry. Don't their mommies feed them breakfast? And I said, well, and why don't you ask them what they have for breakfast? She goes, she goes oh, my friend so-and-so, um, her family's vegan. She had a green apple for breakfast. I'm like, well, wouldn't you be hungry if you had a green apple for breakfast? She goes, yeah. I go, well, this is why you had smoked salmon and avocado, or you had bacon and eggs, or sausage, or vegetables, and some protein, and meaningful amounts of fat. And that means that after my kids eat, they don't want a snack. <laughs> They're actually full. And it's so weird, but your kids can do that. Kids should not be asking to eat all the time. It's because they're eating the wrong stuff when you do that. And my kids don't eat grains. They'll eat some white rice, but they don't eat wheat and things like that. And we've learned one of my kids is sensitive to something called the lectin family, and the other one isn't very sensitive. So that means my son, if he eats potatoes or things with paprika or bell peppers, he gets joint pain and uh, rashes, and he's uncomfortable. Like His body hurts. I have the same thing. Uh, my daughter, she likes potatoes, and they're okay for her because she doesn't have that. So what's kryptonite for one child might not be kryptonite for another. And the way I teach this you can go to daveasprey.com slash roadmap and download it for free. It works for kids and adults. It's based on my my two big nutritional books, uh, The Bulletproof Diet and Fast This Way. And so that's just a gift. And daveasprey.com slash roadmap. And what it'll tell you is there's some foods that are bulletproof. In other words, most everyone can eat these and they feel good. They're full of energy, they're low in toxins, and they have good nutrients. Then there's this big list of suspect foods. And they might be guilty, but they might be innocent, and it might be different for you and your kids. And then there's kryptonite foods. They're bad for everyone. If you give your kids canola oil, soybean oil, deep fried stuff, uh, gluten, sugar, artificial colors and sweeteners, MSG, your kids will act like monsters. This is for neurotypical kids. And if your kids are ADHD or on the spectrum, like I used to be, holy crap, you're going to have a full-on meltdown. And it's not that the kid is choosing to do that. It's that their brain cannot handle it, what happens there. And right now, if you were to give me MSG, I'm going to get really angry for a brief period. Then I'm just going to pass out. Basically, I'll just like fall asleep. And then I'll have massive sugar cravings before I fall asleep. And I will, to this day, if I eat a healthy meal that doesn't have stuff that I shouldn't have in it, 
I'm full and I'm satisfied. I don't think about food for a long time. If there's something wrong in there right after the meal, I'm like, I really want dessert. If I want dessert, it's not because I'm a bad person and it, I'm not even going to deny myself. It's because my liver and my brain are going, oh my God, you just punched me in the face. I need sugar to oxidize these toxins. Like what is going on here? You disturb my biology. And I can either say, I will use my willpower and I will not have it. And then my body will make cortisol and adrenaline and eat up my muscles. Or I can say, you know what? I screwed up. I'm going to have some sugar. I'm going to have a little bit of dessert because it's going to give me the energy to get over the damage I just inflicted with my food. Will you feel that right away? No. The other thing that drives me insane, people say, what is the cause of autism? And the right answer for that is, why do you believe there is only one cause? Do you have any science supporting that whatsoever? And you don't. You've made an assumption that completely blinded you. And we have this new thing called systems pharmacology. And it turns out life is a complex system. What our kids are, what you are, you're a collection of um, trillions of cells, and there are quadrillions of ancient bacteria embedded inside those cells called mitochondria. Each of those little ancient cells that are incorporated into our tissues, they are looking at the environment around you, and they're making real-time decisions around, hmm, given what I can tell, given them a stupid little cell, what should I do? Should I make energy? Should I make hormones? Should I make protein? Should I make neurotransmitters? Should I send an alarm signal? Should I create inflammation? And they're doing their best, right? So our job is to send the right signal to all of those little cells in our kids with the food that we give them, with the light we expose them to in the evenings. And what you'll find is that kids who are not neurotypical, who have neurological autoimmune inflammation, which is the cause of autism. <laughs> your, your immune system is coming after your brain. Why? Well, maybe because you had high metals. Maybe it was a viral thing. It's almost certainly tied to mast cell activation. These are the cells that release um, histamine and a whole bunch of other compounds in the body, and they do it in the brain. Um, but why do they get pissed off? Why do they do this in some people, not others? It's tied to genetics. It's tied to lifestyle, right? It's tied to toxic mold. It's tied to Lyme disease, most of which is, is actually toxic mold, but is diagnosed as Lyme. And it's tied to a whole bunch of other things. So is it caused by vaccines? No. Can vaccines make the immune system more susceptible to autoimmune things? That's actually well documented. So no, vaccines don't cause autism. But it's like, I was trying to explain to my son, um, he's now 11. And they start to get to make more food choices. And I don't eat French. I don't eat anything fried. Fried food creates huge damage in your brain. It's just not good for you. I, uh, so they brought me a bunch of French fries with a, with a grass-fed steak that I ordered. I'm like, oh, well, okay, kids, you want some French fries? And my daughter's like, I like potatoes. I'm like, yeah, but you know what fried food does? So she's a little bit older, so she eats them. And I, her skin was not not as good the next day. And my son's like, well, I really want, hmm, huh, hmm. So he ate him. He's like, well, daddy, the next day, my joints didn't really hurt. I, my neck didn't hurt like it normally does. I, I think I'm okay on potatoes. I'm like, all right. The next day, a wasp stings him. Okay, and it swelled up way more than it should have, right? And he had you know, lots of pain and, and all this other stuff. And then he was even more like, oh, I don't know, my body doesn't feel right for several days. Like, well, here's how it works. Imagine that you want to dig a hole, but if you dig too deep, you're going to hit the water and it's going to fill up with water and mud. You don't want to do that. So when you ate the fried potatoes, which you know, fried food and you know potatoes aren't very good for you, you dug a hole. 
right? And then the wasping, which you didn't plan, but it happened, you dug a hole deep enough to hit the water. So now you have to deal with all the mud. And autism, ADHD, the neurological symptoms, it's the same thing. How many hits can you take before you turn it on? And our job is to give our kids less hits and to build resilient kids. It's so true that if you support a child's biology, support their neurology, reduce the inflammation, optimize their diet. I mean, Remy, my son has a super rare genetic disorder in which every doctor is like, yeah, good luck. Like, here's a bunch of seizure meds and wish you the best. And is he neurotypical? No, not even close. But that child is living his best life. He is the happiest, most magical human being I could ever dream up. And, you know, he's making progress every day. Uh, one of the things that you've done, you have, what, four best-selling books now or five? Yep, four New York Times bestsellers and seven books I've written in total, yeah. Um, but one of your first books was The Better Baby Book with your wife, Dr. Lana. It was the very first book, yeah. And so I would love to touch on a little bit of the infertility crisis and how you and Dr. Lana looked at optimizing fertility, because I think that that's also something for people to look at right now, because so many people, you know, a lot of people are acting reactively to their children having these neurodevelopmental challenges. But I think part of what I'm hoping to do is help inspire people to start being more proactive to optimize their health even before they have children. <laughs> well... I wanted to call the Better Baby book, How to Not Have an Autistic Baby. I <laughs> <laughs> got shut down? <laughs> uh, well, no, I just was, was like, I don't know how many people are concerned about that. And it turns out that even if you're not worried about that, having a baby with a better brain and genes optimized for thriving instead of surviving is everyone can do that, whether you're worried about autism. I didn't want my kids to be autistic, and they're not. So... When I met my wife, she's a medical doctor trained at the Karolinska Institute, which is one of the top medical schools in the world. And she ran an emergency room um, in Stockholm. So she's a, you know, a qualified doctor. She was infertile. And, you know, her professors, when they did all the tests they do when they're in, you know, when you're in medical school, you get to do all sorts of cool testing. Like, ah, oh, sorry, you're not gonna have kids. I'm like, yeah, I don't believe it. <laughs> so um, put together a program to make her fertility increase. And it it was involved. It took about five years of research and thousands of papers. And that resulted in the book. And this was my first book, so I had no idea how to, you know, write a book or market a book and put it out in the market and, you know, didn't realize uh, how complex it was. I ended up rewriting it twice. But at this point, there's thousands of children out there who would not be without the book or who would have developmental problems they don't have. So I feel really good about it. What our approach was, was okay. Lana has been, or she had been too thin for her entire life, as in, you know, no padding on the butt to sit, to sit on. And some of this was environmental. Uh, some of this was, um, you know, some of this was genetic, uh, when I met her, I said, hmm, you're eating about a half a cup of ground flax seeds every day. And you're eating soy milk every day. And hey, those are healthy, right? And like, no, they're not. We're going to put you on coconut milk and we're going to get rid of the flax, which has a lot of omega-6, very unstable oils that are inflammatory. And funny enough, within about 60 days of just getting rid of bad oils and flax and some other stuff in it that's irritating for a lot of people, getting around a few basic supplements, and grass-fed meat instead of industrial meat. 
uh, and getting rid of chicken, which is a poor quality fat and a poor quality protein compared to grass-fed beef and lamb. Magically, she gained the 20 pounds she'd been trying to gain for 20 years. And now she has curves and she's like, I'm warm. I'm not cold all the time. And, and it doesn't hurt to sit down without a cushion underneath me. Like, I love my body now. And I like how my pants are like, this is what I needed. And her energy and, and mood improved and the anxiety levels went down. And she had PCOS. So we did the appropriate things. Most people with PCOS have an issue with toxic mold. Funny enough, she lived in a house with toxic mold. Most people also have yeast. So mold exposure and yeast are a very big thing. So we dealt with those pharmaceutically and detoxing the way I talked about in Moldy, uh, moldymovie.com. By the way, it's, guys, it's free. You, you can watch it. I, I traveled around the country, interviewed about a dozen of the top doctors because it's real. And I interviewed a dozen normal people who were completely disrupted by toxic mold the same way I was. Part of the reason my symptoms were as strong as they were, I had the genetics. I, I was already born with a different kind of brain, but I grew up in a basement that had been flooded and not remediated because no one knew about this in the 80s, right? So um, that gave me a ton of extra neurological inflammation. So we dealt with that and magically that plus eating the right diet for a couple years turned her fertility back on. We had one child at 39 and one at 42 without IVF, without hormone treatments. And okay, that's late anyway. And to have thriving, healthy kids later in life, going from infertile to fertile, and to have you know very healthy, <laughs> um, you know, cognitively, uh, we can barely get the heads out the birth canal. And in the book, I talk about them. Like, don't take too much of these supplements because your kid's brain will grow so much that you can't deliver the child. So give those afterwards by eating them and then putting them in your breast milk because they come out that way. It turns out up to 17% of the fat in breast milk is the same kind of fat that's in brain octane oil. <laughs> so that's kids awesome. like <laughs> this kind of fat. So pregnant women and nursing women, do not be plant-based. You cannot build good cells out of that. It is incredibly dangerous to be plant-based when you're pregnant. Eat grass-fed meat because industrial meat has hormones you do not want to expose you or your kids to as well as glyphosate and antibiotic residues. So basically, butter, coconut oil, grass-fed hamburgers all day long, minimize grains, minimize sugar, um, and it's okay to have carbs, just don't have sugar. And I talk about the diet in the book. And it, it works. And to this to this day, Lana, instead of being an ER doctor, which is highly stressful and really not a good thing to do, I'm grateful for all the ER doctors. We need them. But in terms of taking hits, especially when you're a mom, um, she does fertility consulting for, she has about a dozen clients globally, usually like Hollywood people or entrepreneurs and people like that. And she has you know, weekly calls and runs their labs in conjunction with their doctors. And she basically walks, holds her hand and walks them through. Here's how you're going to get pregnant, even though they said it was impossible. And the results have been fantastic. So it's it's there, it's possible. And the info's all in a book. Or you just have to have to do it, right? Well, it's that's... That's the whole, the hard part for so many people. I think, um, I always think that that's one of the most interesting things about biohacking actually is sort of the mindset of the entire field and all of the people that you've collected and who have come together. You know, it's sort of a mentality of like, I will not settle. I will not be told what I can or cannot do. And that's one of the things that I respect so much about what you've done. I mean, you you had chronic illness and a lot of challenges that you were like, I'm just not going to settle for this. I'm going to live a healthier, more vibrant life and, you know, see how far I can do it. You know, with my yes. son, I'm sort of like, well, 
this is the prognosis, but like, what the hell do you know? There's 300 kids with his diagnosis in the world. So like, let's see what we can do as long as it's safe and effective. Um, from, from your work at, uh, 40 years of Zen, have you seen anything? Like, is there like a brainwave pattern that you've noticed? Like, what is it that you think makes biohackers have that mentality of like, I'm going to, I'm going to find a way through. There isn't a brainwave. Um, it's, it's a story, uh, it's how you see the world, but it isn't about changing a brainwave for that. We learn a, a pattern um, well, let, let me talk about 40 years of Zen for a minute, just what it does, okay? When we're young, even when we're in the womb, I mentioned those cells that are embedded in your body, uh, the, the mitochondria, they, they actually each have their own bacteria-level consciousness. Not very much. But since there's so many of them, they all sort of get together. You know how a bunch of bacteria will make yogurt and magic it has a certain shape and form? Well, your body is kind of like that, or a little thing that floats in kombucha called the SCOBY. And you say, oh, but no, I'm this big piece of meat. You know, I have all these things, but not really. You're a collection of tiny little nodules, little compute modes, little little things that do things, and they all work together in this amazing orchestra. And when you're looking at, okay, how what does a biohacker's brain look like? It just looks like a brain, but your brain is you're evolving. You don't have any prefrontal cortex, any consciousness. You know, when, when you're one years old, the, the human part of you isn't there and your brainwaves are actually the same as someone in deep sleep for the first while. And then like in, in the dreamy state, it, literally you're, you have the brainwaves of someone asleep when you're four and five and, and occasionally have these little bursts of awareness. But you're, you're picking up the environment and you're in a very different place. Well, all that time, the cells in your body are going, how, from their perspective, you're a walking petri dish and they live in you. Like, how do I keep this meat alive? Right? What are the rules of the world? And these are rules you don't think about because you don't have the thinking part of your brain very much. You only have the feeling parts. So you learn, hmm, this is scary and dangerous. This, and by the way, if your parents aren't going to take care of you because they're pissed at you, then a tiger might eat you and you could die because you know you can't take care of yourself. So we end up getting all these patterns about this is the way the world is. And a pattern that gets installed by media and by our parents that is that when stuff happens to my health, it's random and there's nothing I can do about it. And we get another pattern in there. Um, all all calories are the same. And it doesn't matter if I drink a Coke or uh, I eat an apple. It's the same thing because it's just calories as long as I don't have too many. And these are wrong. All those are wrong. So we end up having a belief system and we have an automatic neurological pattern. And quite often, um, especially with kids on the spectrum, but with all kids, if I do this, which I'm naturally inclined to do, um, then someone's going to yell at me Then I'm going to feel stress. So pretty soon, every time you feel the, the inclination to do this, you'll feel stress, right? And then this is how we self-regulate. And it's pretty nasty because what that means is I get a lot of 50-year-old entrepreneurs with $100 million who come through 40 years of Zen and they're actually running programming from being bullied in seventh grade or something, someone dropped them when they were three. And we don't consciously run that programming because it's designed to be automatic. This is what keeps, you know, that's what makes deer run away from, from a predator. It, it's automatic and it's not visible unless you do some neuroscience or some other work. It, it's, it's called trauma in a lot of therapy, but it isn't conscious trauma. It's just like little things that, you know, it, no one would think it was trauma, except at the time it scared you. So you got a new rule. So biohackers, most of them, they, there's kind of two types. There's the ones like me, where I spend $300,000 getting well because I, I was feeling so crappy. I had all the diseases that you'd expect when you're 60 in my 20s. 
arthritis, high risk of stroke and heart attack, prediabetes, cognitive dysfunction, chronic strep throat, uh, Lyme disease, chronic fatigue, and the list goes on and on and on. I'm like, I can't do this anymore. And I've been successful in my career despite all this. Uh, so I'm just going to do whatever it takes and I'm going to have to hack it because my doctors are useless. And now though, there's two kinds of biohackers. There's the people who are saying, I got something to fix. But there's a bunch of people saying, you know what? I want to grow and evolve and expand. Right? And both of them have that same definition of biohacking. To have control over my own biology. Right? So one is, I don't want to be sick and tired anymore. And the other one is I want to show up in a certain way in the world and I want enough energy to know that I have whatever life brings to me, that I have enough energy to handle that and then some. That's why I named my my biggest and most famous company Bulletproof. And because of that, like, you know, Superman, he's Bulletproof. Like, he can handle it, right? And it's not that you're actually Bulletproof, but it's that you have resilience. So half of, half of them are seekers who are looking to evolve and half of them are people saying, I don't want to be sick anymore. <laughs> and it's the same thing. Maybe you want to be swole. I'm going to get big. Like I got to have muscles. Okay, great. You want control of your own biology. You want to look like a balloon animal, more power to you. Right. And someone else, I don't want to look like the other kind of balloon animal. Like I used to look, I want to lose my hundred pounds. Okay. Control. Or you know what? I want to be able to come home after my commute and be a good parent for my kids without being exhausted and cranky all the time. Okay. That's also control of your own biology. Right. That's what unites us all. Yeah. One also, it's it's kind of helpful to be a biohacker when there are uh, viruses roaming the world and rampant levels of fear and uh, all of that that's happening this this fun year. <laughs> um, it's uh, um, having resilience is really important. Um, resilience comes from making enough energy. It also comes from your mindset. And one of the big things that I, I train adults to do, both in, in my, my mentorship program, which is called the Upgrade Collective, and the URL is ouropgradecollective.com. That's where I teach thousands of people every year about, here's how to own your biology. Here's all the biohacking techniques. I teach all my books as courses uh, in a big community. And also at, at 40 Years of Zen, the state that, that we're all really looking for that drives resilience, um, there, there's three kind of in order things. The first one is, well, let's develop empathy. And this is harder for people on the spectrum because you probably don't even know the person's name. I never knew the names of the kids in my classes because it was just too much. <laughs> Apparently, most people, by the end of second grade, you know the names of all the people in your class. I never did. I knew like three people's names. <laughs> and the rest of them were like, like fuzzy things. I don't know. <laughs> it, it was weird. Uh, I'm much better at that now. But uh, where was I going with that? We were talking about... The three things that build resilience. There empathy. you go. Okay, so empathy. You need to be able to recognize other people and then connect with them and actually feel their feel their pain and feel their their happiness, right? So that that's kind of step one on the emotional intelligence scale. Step two is compassion, right? You don't have to feel their pain, <laughs> but you wish them well, right? Like, like you have compassion. Oh, I can see you're really, you're really in pain. Maybe it'll help you, but I can see it, but I don't have to feel it to see it. Right. And so that's a more evolved spiritual state. But the final state that you can get to, and this is actually in Eastern and Western literature around personal development, is you can actually get into the final state, which is called equanimity. And equanimity is something that is 
the monk meditating in the middle of, of a hurricane. And this is where no matter what's happening in the world around you, you are calm and grounded in control of your mind and your body, your spirit, your biology. And this is where people go when they start becoming biohackers. They grow a sense of equanimity. Like, I got this, I can handle it. And that means if you do get a virus, your body can handle it and your mind can handle it. It means that you're not susceptible to fear programming when they go, for your own safety, you have to do. And they tell you to do a bunch of stupid things that are there to make you feel safe, but don't actually make you safer. And you can also say, you know what? I'll just do it because it makes other people feel safer and it just doesn't matter. Or you can be like, I'm safe if I do it or I don't. But the deal is you're safe because you got this. And most people now don't feel like they've got this. And that's why biohacking is really important. Well, and there's something that you've talked about before that I think is so important in terms of building resilience with our children. And that's that you always uh, ask your children what they've failed at. Um, And I think that that's something that's so important for us to look at, because if we're just praising our kids for the things that they do right, then we're never encouraging them to go outside of the box of what they're they're capable of doing and seeing how far they can push things and how far they can grow. Um, So I really love that 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 perspective, (laughs) you know, I. uh, I've done this with my kids since they're very little and and I say, all right, it's bedtime when you're talking to men. All right tell me three things you're grateful for because gratitude turns off the fight or flight response. So they go to sleep better and it's just good to review good things that happened. And then I say, tell me a win. And I'll share mine as well for each of these. And a win is something you worked on that you achieved. Right? And that's actually really good because we tend to focus on all the failures and we remember those, we don't remember the wins. So that brings that back into focus. And then I say, tell me a fail. And a fail is something that you worked on that you didn't achieve. Right? Like you actually failed. And then they'll just say, oh, you know, I was trying to do this and it didn't work and whatever. And they'll say, great, that's fantastic. Right? And a lot of people are like, what do you mean? You're scarring your kids. It's like, no, that means you did something that you didn't know how to do. It means you pushed yourself to the point you couldn't make it happen. Right? And, and that's great. That's how you grow and expand. And if they ever say, well, daddy, I didn't have any fails today, then... It's like, oh, maybe tomorrow can be a better day. Because today, you never, you, you didn't do what it takes to learn new things. And of course, we learn through playing and experiencing and all that. But if you really want to grow, you have to push. And if you push like that, you're like, wow, no, I, I wanted to, you know, my son now, of his own accord, he got a Rubik's Cube. This got him a cheap one and he liked it. And so he saved his money and he bought a special magnetic gamer cube, you know, that's extra fast. And he said, you know, I'm setting a goal. I want to be able to, within a year, solve the Rubik's Cube in under a minute. Like, that's fantastic, right? No pressure from us. And uh, so he, he applied himself. And his fail is, well, I wanted to do it in under 50 seconds today, and I, I didn't make it happen. But I'm working on it. And then, within a few months, he, he exceeded his goal, but he kept doing it. And now he's sub-20 seconds, and he's going to go to a competition but it's because he learned it's okay to fail in solving the Rubik's Cube. You know, it, it, it's okay that he didn't do it. So now he tracks, oh, yep, I didn't get a good solve today, but tomorrow I do. And it's kind of ridiculous because I can't even see his hands moving, but he, he's approaching the point where he'll be a you know, national-level competitor just because he learned to fail. 
Otherwise, he had been frustrated and thrown the cube at the wall the way I did when I was 10. <laughs> like, how would you ever solve this damn thing? But well, you were eating you, all of the inflammatory yeah. foods and oh, living God. in mold, which I'm sure your yeah. kids are not. <laughs> no, they're not. And it's funny. And you know, if he does eat inflammatory stuff, uh, which happens, um, he's slower on his cube and he's crankier and, you know, his body feels different. And I pointed out, and now that they're, you know, my daughter's 14, son's 11, uh, turning 12 this year, they're a little bit more experimental with it. But when they were younger, um, probably around eight or nine, um, our, um, our babysitter, um, stopped off at a McDonald's drive-thru and the kids have only gone to the bathroom at McDonald's because I'm like, guys, that's not food. And so, and they're in the car and they're like, you can talk to that thing and like people bring you food. Like, this is amazing. Uh, but they don't, you know, they, they know they don't eat it. The babysitter knows that you don't eat junk food. So um, they rolled the, kinder, the the window down and said, I want one poopy chemical latte, please. Because, you know, they, like that's a <laughs> child's thing. Like, well, they put bad stuff in their coffee and chemicals and sugar and whatever. And it's not they really, actually, some of the flavorings are chemicals. But anyway, I'm like, guys, we wouldn't do that. So, they kind of food shamed our babysitter. I'm like, guys, that's not okay. Some people eat junk food because it's cheap, because they like it, you know, and, it, and people eat what they want. And it's not our job to tell others what to do. It's our job to do what works for us and it's their job to do what works for them. So I said, we're going to go to McDonald's and you're going to get to play on all the play structures. We're going to eat pie and ice cream and French fries and hamburgers and it's going to taste really good. And I'm thinking, I'm going to feel like crap for a week because I know what bad oils do to my brain. And they both got really mad. They looked at me and they said, Daddy, you can take us to McDonald's, but you can't make us eat. <laughs> and I go, what do you mean? They said, both of us have had food that gives us tummy aches and makes makes us get headaches. Um, and we don't want to do that to ourselves. We, we just don't want to. And I was like, wow, okay, kind of parenting win. And so now at this point, a little bit later, the kids feel safe eating food that they know isn't very good for them. But they also know that it costs them and they don't want to spend that. They don't want it to cost what them. What the fuck is going uh, And now they're questioning, like, does it really cost me? And so Alan learned his lesson because, well, you ate it then and it made you weaker and then you couldn't take the wasting, right? And so that kind of thing, you got to teach them age-appropriate stuff like that. But when they're really young, it's like, you eat this, it makes you powerful. It makes your brain work. It makes you focused, right? And if you eat this, it doesn't. So it's, uh, it's always learning. It's always learning. But the younger they learn, the better. I mean, I have so many adult patients who come in with like chronic arthritis and all this inflammation and they can barely walk. And I'll take them off of gluten and dairy and sugar just for a couple of weeks just to see how they do. They'll drop 20 pounds. They'll be going up and down the stairs. Oh, yeah. And then within like a month after that, they'll be like, yeah, I had the cake. So I feel like the younger we get them, definitely the better. And, you know, they're, they're all going to go off the rails when they're teenagers. It's by design. Oh, yeah. They're going to do the opposite of what you teach them. Uh, but by that point, they've already built healthy cells and a healthy brain. And it, it, the studies actually show even their gut bacteria is permanently changed. We feed them junk food early in life. Even if they start eating healthy later, it's not the same. But so I, I'm, I'm 48. I didn't used to be able to touch my toes and all this stuff. And, and I haven't done anything. But like I'm, I'm super crazy bendy. Like let's see. I'm probably put my foot behind my head without really thinking about it like that. I'm like, I don't know how many, how many 48 year olds are just off the fly able to do that. It's because I eat collagen all the time. Cause it's an important, you know, it's an important part of having healthy connective tissues. And for a person with chronic inflammation, like it's kind of cool, right? Oh, um, I have a good story for you. And then I'll let yeah. you go. Cause we're running out of time. But, um, 
I went and got a massage the other day and it was, you know, the guy who was doing it was a little bit younger. I didn't really know how old, but we were talking because he was growing, you know, getting a farm or whatever. And I mentioned that I was 37 in part of the story that I was telling. And so we started, he kept talking and then he was like, you know, something you said just totally blew my mind. And I was like, okay, this is weird. What blew your mind? And then he was like, you know, I I can't believe you're actually 37. And I was like, yeah. And he was like, I mean, I thought you were way younger. I mean, 37, are you okay? And the guy literally was just like, he thought that because I was 37 years old, I was literally decrepit and like unable to walk. And I was like, yeah, dude, I'm good. Like, take your herbs. Don't eat inflammatory foods. (laughs) Like, you're going to be just all right also. Don't you worry. So we'll have to get him on the bulletproof path. (laughs) Absolutely. There's a lot of people who walk around believing that they're weak or something's wrong with them. And a lot of times they think it's a moral issue. It's a hardware issue. And I had a brain scan from Dr. Daniel Amen years ago. I was in business school at Wharton, which is kind of a good business school. And I was going to fail out, to be perfectly honest. And I'm pretty sure I'm smart. You know, I survive in Silicon Valley. Um, but uh, I went and I had him look at my brain and, and they said, wow, inside your brain, is total chaos. I don't know how you're standing here in front of me right now. You have the best camouflage I've ever seen. And by camouflage, they mean inside my brain was chaos. And there were huge parts of my brain that had no metabolic activity. And it was because of the mold toxins. And by camouflage, that's what people who are high-functioning autism do. We learn the rules of the weird people around us we don't understand, and we operate And he's like, wow, you're going to business school. I thought you came in here to try and get Adderall so that you could, you know, a lot of college kids try to take that as a smart drug. And you could tell he dismissed me when he saw my brain. He's like, oh my God. And he actually did try to put me in Adderall, which made me want to like remove my skin. It was terrible. So that was not right. I took Modafinil, uh, Provigil for about eight years, which is a very powerful smart drug. I love this stuff. Once I got my biology in, and sometimes it takes a couple of years to replace fats in the body and protein and all that. Um, but when I got things working, the whole bulletproof coffee thing, I don't take modafinil. I barely feel it because it's like I'm always on smart drugs <laughs> like because my brain actually is programmed the right way and it has enough energy. Uh, and I can succeed at whatever I want to succeed at at this point. It's, it's pretty incredible um, given where I came from. So like if I can do this as a kid with a, you know, they wouldn't let me be valedictorian. Uh, because uh, my behavior was so poor. <laughs> so even though I had the grades, like, no, you don't get that. Uh, and uh, along the way, I probably was in more than 100 fights, uh, none of which I started, uh, at least with the first punch, but all of which I started with my behavior, but didn't understand, right? Totally. Um, and so that kind of a thing, um, it's all hackable, but you got to have the right the right biology in the first place. It's so important. And it's, it's so possible, you know, I, um, as a, you know, I'm a single mom of a child with multiple disabilities. I run a company. I just finished my doctorate. I've got two cats and a dog and people are always like, well, you're superwoman. And I'm like, no, I just, I go to sleep at 10 and I eat good food and I drink my bulletproof coffee and I take my supplements. Like, you know, I take care of myself so that I can do the things that matter to me, you know? 
we, we should probably end this with that advice for parents. Yep. Like, look, if you don't take care of your health because you're too busy taking care of your kids, you will be unable to function. A, so that whole put your oxygen mask on first, it's so cliche. It's how it works. You you make the time. And look, if you have to put an iPad in front of your kids so you can exercise or get a good breakfast, it's a great trade-off. It's better if you don't, but do not sacrifice your health because if you do that, you're not able to do the things that you have to do as a parent. Uh, and that lets you take care of your child's health. Also, if you sacrifice your health, what's your kid going to do? They're going to copy you. hundred so no percent. Yeah, no, that's perfect. Well, thank you so much, Dave. I am super duper grateful for all of your wisdom and all of the work that you've done. Truly, it's made such a tremendous difference in me and Remy's life and I'm, and so many other people. So thank you very much for your time and your wisdom and hope to talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the Radical Remedy Podcast. The Radical Remedy Podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing or other professional health care services, including the giving of medical advice, and no doctor-slash-patient relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast or materials linked from this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.